thank you for coming out on a freezing cold night to celebrate Wagner. He would be so happy. <laughs> Wagner is in a class by himself, partially because the works are so gigantic that you don't get to hear them all the time. And in order to hear them, you have to make a special effort, just, just as you did tonight. So when you travel to not necessarily Bayreuth, but uh, Seattle or Houston or someplace that actually is performing a ring cycle, you're already making a personal investment in Wagner. And Wagner purposefully chose to make his work such that people did have to make a personal investment. That was part of his plan. It was very intentional. So over the course of the next hour, hour and a half, you'll, you'll know what you know already, which is Wagner was certainly a great genius, uh, but you'll also know that if, if there was a more self-serving human being, I don't know who it was. Um, and that does not in any way diminish from the greatness of the works of art that he produced. But we'll start at the beginning. So Wagner was born in Leipzig in 1813. And um, his father is a little bit in doubt because he was either the ninth child that his mother had with Carl Friedrich Wagner or the first child that she had with Ludwig Geyer, who six months after um, Wagner's birth became her second husband and she moved in with him. So uh, Wagner grew up with the name um, Geyer as his last name until he was 14. And then he changed to Wagner. But nobody will ever really know which gentleman was his father. In any case, the second one um, was in theater. And that served Wagner very well, because he was immediately drawn to theater, fascinated by it, uh, completely absorbed in it, not music theater. So he loved Goethe, and he loved Shakespeare, and later on he loved Aeschylus. Music only came when he was 13 years old. By this time, the second father was also dead. He was 13 years old, and he created a play called Leubalt, sort of a potboiler melodrama, that was a little bit modeled after Goethe and Shakespeare, and he thought it would be good to set it to music. So he asked for music lessons. And that is why music entered into Wagner's life. Now, by the time he was 18 and he went to university uh, in Leipzig, he was not studying music, but interested enough that he went to find a music teacher and the cantor at the Thomaskirche, um, a guy named Wendling, Theodor Christian Wendling, became his teacher and was so impressed with his abilities that he did everything he could to support Wagner as a composer. Now, that's extraordinary, because uh, for a child to have had very little contact with serious music other than hearing Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, hearing Beethoven's Seventh Symphony, hearing Mozart's Requiem, and uh, a couple other pieces that he heard in his youth, um, the opera Fidelio by Beethoven, and, and to be already an accomplished composer is extraordinary. At this time, however, Wagner was not uh, extraordinary as a composer, and his musical style was very much an imitation of the styles that he heard around him. So Wagner tried to write a couple of operas that we don't 
even have anymore. Um, there was one called a betrothal, and uh, then there are a couple that we do have, but we never hear, uh, die Fehl and das Liebesverbot, which was sort of loosely based on love's labor's lost. And um, he, he didn't find his way in this new form that he was experimenting with until he wrote an opera called Rienzi. Now, Rienzi is still not one of the Wagner operas that is performed. In fact, they will not perform it at Bayreuth. So Wagner's own family and his own legacy doesn't include Rienzi. But Rienzi became a hit. And it was the first opera where Wagner attracted the attention of the opera-loving public. He also attracted the attention of perhaps the most celebrated at the time 19th century opera composer, uh, Meyerbeer. Meyerbeer today is still performed, but certainly not as widely as Wagner or other great 19th century composers. But at the time, uh, Meyerbeer's style took the world by storm. Uh, it was so much more massive in scope than the bel canto operas of Rossini and Bellini and Donizetti. And the people flocked to see Robert le Diable and these wonderful, gigantic, melodramatic pieces in Paris with huge choruses and usually ballets inserted. So Wagner was following this model. But he was never one to take the salaries that he earned from these performances and save the money that he made. He uh, always had extraordinarily expensive tastes. And soon, Wagner was trying to get away from his creditors. So he left Paris, he was in Riga, and with his new wife, the actress Minna Planer, uh, in order to get away from the creditors, he actually got on a ship without a passport where they would allow him to go because the creditors had already seized his passport. And uh, he and Minna took a three-week crossing, if you can imagine this, three weeks from Riga to London. It was apparently terrifying. However, the good news is that the inspiration came out of this trip for his next opera, The Flying Dutchman. Now, you recognize that title. <laughs> the Flying Dutchman was the name of a ship, and the Dutchman was condemned to sail the world eternally. Every seven years, he is allowed to go into port and the only thing that will ever save him from this eternal damnation is if a woman decides that she is willing to love him unconditionally. Now, in the legend that Wagner took this from, the woman does make that decision, so both of them are damned eternally. <laughs> Wagner rewrites the story, and in his libretto, because Wagner wrote every libretto, wrote all the words, all the texts, to every opera he ever wrote. There aren't so many composers who've done that. Wagner rewrote the ending so that the redemption of the Dutchman does come from the sacrifice of the heroine. In this story, which he sets in Norway, he'd originally planned to set it in Scotland, but he reset it in Norway. So the heroine is Senta. Now, Wagner is beginning to show a certain psychological tendency that stays with him throughout his career. 
the idea that a person left to their own devices is so wicked that they require redemption is central to many of Wagner's stories. So the Dutchman himself has been condemned to this eternal fate because he invoked Satan once. And for this, he's traveling around the world. So here's the Dutchman, and he just happens during this brief window that comes every seven years to be parked alongside the ship of a Norwegian seaman named Dalant. And Dalant's crew looks on board the Dutchman's crew, the Dutchman's ship, to see their crew, and of course they can't see anything because the crew are all ghosts. So the Dutchman says to Dalant, I would love to marry your daughter. He's never met Dalant's daughter. I would love to marry your daughter uh, just so that you know everything. I'm damned eternally, and <laughs> she has to give up her life to save me, but here's some gold. Will you do it? And Dalant says, of course I will. <laughs> so this is the, the setup for the Flying Dutchman. Now, Senta, meanwhile, has, this is opera, Senta has found a storybook which includes the tale of the Flying Dutchman. And so she, before he even appears, has a premonition and is hoping that this otherwise unredeemable person will appear so that she can swear her eternal love to him. He does, of course, appear, and she does. Uh, but at the end, um, because everyone realizes who the Dutchman is, uh, they send him away. He is on his ship, leaving, and Senta, to prove her undying love, flings herself to her death into the ocean, at which point the Dutchman is redeemed. So this theme of redemption through love we will find again in Wagner's operas. What does Wagner change from Rienzi to the Flying Dutchman? It's a compositional technique. Now I promise this is not gonna be like a music theory class, but I'm just gonna briefly say that most music up until this point may have been composed with themes that return, but never was this compositional technique exploited to its fullest until Richard Wagner got his hands on it. And what he did was take tiny melodic fragments. They might be four notes long, they might be two, three bars long, and he reuses them. He sh puts them in different keys and somewhat different rhythmic configurations, certainly different orchestrations, and um, suddenly he has these building blocks from which he can create these massive structures that have no set numbers with beginnings and ends. You know, Verdi was born in the same year as Wagner, and Verdi, whose operas are also wonderful and great, did not throw out this convention. If you go to a Verdi opera, the aria begins, the aria ends in the same key, there's a little recitative, and then maybe a chorus begins, and that chorus ends in the same key, and there's a little recitative, and something else happens. But great as Verdi's music is, he was content to remain within the formula. Wagner, partly in order to accommodate what he felt was necessary in a drama, told through music, chose to use these little motifs. Now, Wagner himself never used the word leitmotif or leading motif, but 
uh, later, that name was given to the little fragments, what George Bernard Shaw called his musical calling cards. He would leave them throughout the opera so that you would recognize the character. Now, some of them are used 20, 30, 40 times in an opera so that you recognize it as one of the central themes. Some of them may only come up two or three times. In The Flying Dutchman, for example, you're going to hear the motif of the Dutchman in the sea over and over. And even when other things are going on, like a, a storm, the motif will keep coming back, reminding us. Now, Senta, the heroine, is of a completely different nature than the sea, the unforgiving sea. Senta has a, a motif. which tells us right away that she is a compassionate person. So compassionate, indeed, that she sacrifices herself for the Dutchman. Okay. Uh, Wagner now turns away from the story of the Flying Dutchman, which he got from a Heinrich Heine parody, actually, back to the Middle Ages. And all of Wagner's stories after Flying Dutchman stay rooted in the mythology of the Middle Ages. So he writes the opera Tannhäuser. Now Tannhäuser was a historical figure. He was a knight and he was a minstrel. So the story of Tannhäuser focuses on a song contest that the knights have at the Wartburg, which is a real castle that still stands in Germany. The conflict that's crucial to the opera Tannhäuser is between sensual love and higher love. Now, as you know, German opera has somehow always dealt with that question as though there's a difference between sensual love and higher love, so we're not going to get into a discussion of whether or not there is a difference. The point is that philosophically for the German um, storytelling people since the Middle Ages, uh, there was a distinction made between erotic love and chivalric love. And so the hero, Tannhäuser, has spent a year uh, with Venus in her mountain of erotic pleasure. And we meet these two characters right away at the beginning of the opera, Venus and um, Tannhäuser, we can tell right away from the motifs and the music that they sing that uh, the passion that is going on here is very earthy and uh, not ethereal at all. The, the theme of uh, their love is something that you also hear in the overture to Tannhäuser. But... So, uh, the conflict now for Tannhäuser is that he wants to return to the life he knew at Wartburg, but he knows that he'll be an outcast because he has spent this time with Venus. So he decides he's going to go in for the annual song contest, and if he wins, uh, all will be forgiven, and um, he'll win the hand of Elisabeth. Well, it doesn't work out this way. 
you can imagine that once they all figure out where he's been, um, they reject him completely. He goes to Rome to get pardoned by the Pope. The Pope says, you have no more chance of being pardoned for everything you've done than my dead staff has a chance of sprouting leaves. So, well, it's opera. So at the <laughs> beginning of the final act, the pilgrims are all coming back. Tannhäuser's reunited with his old friend Wolfram, who loves the same woman that Tannhäuser loves, with a higher love. But guess what? Elizabeth is not interested in the higher love. She is interested in Tannhäuser. And so just as Senta sacrifices herself for the Dutchman, uh, Elizabeth sacrifices herself for Tannhäuser. And as Wolfram and Tannhäuser are chatting, a funeral procession goes by, and there it is, Elisabeth, who has, rather than uh, choosing somebody else so that she could live, remained true to her love for Tannhäuser. So her coffin is being carried away, and then the news reaches us that the Pope's staff has begun to sprout leaves. <laughs> so Wagner is into this theme, you really see that redemption through love, through the love of a self-sacrificing woman, is key, key to these early operas. Uh, Wagner conducted the premiere of Dutchman and the premiere of Tannhäuser himself, but he was not able to conduct the premiere of his next opera, Lohengrin, because he, during a time of revolution, took the side of the revolutionaries and said that property was a mistake and capitalism was bringing humanity down to a degradation that we could never recover from. So he was exiled from Germany and remained in exile for over 10 years. He did not cease to write operas, but uh, he was in Switzerland and unable to come back to Germany until, gosh, I guess 1861 and Saxony even later. So. Um, Wagner entrusted the conducting of his next opera to his friend Franz Liszt. Now you all know Liszt was one of the great pianists of all times, but he was also a conductor and a composer and uh, a champion of Wagner's. Now being a champion of Wagner's was not a cheap proposition <laughs> because as I mentioned, Wagner was always in extreme debt and uh, he was also, as I mentioned, not a shy person. So he would write to his friends and say, um, I do need 10,000 marks immediately, and if you're any kind of man at all and care for the state of art in the world, you will provide this by tomorrow morning. <laughs> and astonishingly, his friends came through, but none until a certain fantastic moment in Wagner's life, none more than Franz Liszt, who time after time took the income from his concerts. Liszt was the rock star of the 1850s. I mean, he made millions uh, performing as a solo pianist around Europe. And uh, many of those millions went straight to Richard Wagner. So Lohengrin was conducted by Liszt. Now, Lohengrin is also set in medieval times, and it's uh, a 
fairy tale, essentially, about a knight who comes in on a swan and saves the life of a woman who has been wronged. But there's a problem. The um, factions working behind the scenes are trying to bring our, our heroine down, Elsa. And um, in the end, Elsa is entrapped into asking Lohengrin the one question that she's not allowed to ask, which is, what's your name? And so Lohengrin has to go away on his swan. But Wagner is discovering things about harmony as he's writing Lohengrin that are new and different. Um, for example, at one point, Elsa is singing in a key that Wagner loves for passionate uh, romantic music, A-flat major. think, well, well, that's a very beautiful melody, which it certainly is. And Wagner was a great melodist, wrote terrific tunes both as melodies and that suited the voice. But what you probably weren't thinking was we went from A flat major to A flat minor into B minor into D major, into D minor into F major, and then from F back through B flat minor into A flat. I mean, that's um, that's like embryonic Schoenberg. We're, we're covering all these different key centers uh, without the ear being disturbed by, by the process. So I play that example because it will rear its head later in a more famous guise. Okay. Um, after the composition of Lohengrin, or actually before the, the, the premiere of Lohengrin, Wagner hits upon the story that's to form the embryo of the greatest piece, the largest piece, that, that he ever writes. And you all know what that is, the Ring of the Nibelung. So the interesting thing is that the ring was composed from back to front. Wagner hit upon the story that forms the final part of the ring first and thought that that was the only opera he was going to write on this particular subject. It was to be called Siegfried's Death, Siegfried's Tod. And the story is that Siegfried is married, but a potion somehow causes him to lose his memory. So unlike other men who have affairs because they want to, he has an affair because he can't remember who he's married to. <laughs> so he has an affair with Gutrune, and then somehow he is tricked, uh, he has to die, uh, his real wife throws herself um, into a fire and is burned up in transcendent music, and uh, that's Siegfried's Tod. Now, this only would have been a short opera, right? Just five hours, but Wagner, <laughs> we, we have it. I mean, now that's how long it is. But, but Wagner says, I have a lot of ends tied up, but I don't have the threads that led to those ends. So he thinks, I'm gonna write a second opera about Siegfried's youth so that people can understand how Siegfried came to be the heroic man that he is, which makes his demise more tragic. And they'll understand how he came to be together with Brunhilde in the first place. 
And so he had two stories, Siegfried's Tod and Der Junge Siegfried, the young Siegfried. Those two operas are now Goethe Dämmerung and Siegfried. Well, he thought, I really have to give some backstory to this young Siegfried. I mean, where did he come from? Who were his parents? And this creates the opera Die Walküre, which is the story of Siegmund and Sieglinde getting together. They're sisters, by, uh, brother and sister. By the way. And uh, their child is Siegfried. But they are not just two ordinary brothers and sisters having sex and having a child. They are the half-children of Wotan, who is a god. So I don't know what that makes it. But in any case, Wotan has been, you know, eternally wandering the earth and, and having children everywhere. And um, his wife is very angry about this. So in this story, uh, when Sigmund, Siegfried's father, uh, is in battle and should be allowed to be killed and carried nobly up to Valhalla, Brunhilde saves him. And oops, not allowed to do that. So Sigmund has to die and be taken to Valhalla, but Sieglinde, who is pregnant, is allowed to have the child. The child is Siegfried. Wotan punishes uh, Brunhilde because his wife, Fricka, says that he has to. But she, <laughs> she insists on a punishment more severe. And Wotan compromises. Wotan is a great compromiser in everything. He compromises with the giants who built Valhalla. He, he's compromising with life and death all the time. So he, instead of doing away with Brunhilde, puts her in a circle of fire so that if anybody is foolish enough or brave enough to jump through this circle of fire, then they can have Brunhilde. And of course, Siegfried is our man. So by working backwards, Wagner tells this story. And then finally, after these three operas, he decides he should write the prologue that sets the whole thing in perspective. And that prologue, which is now Das Rheingold, begins with music and symbols, which are essentially the beginning of the universe, which to a good German are the river Rhine. So we have 135 bars of one chord uh, <laughs> that symbolize the primordial beginnings of everything. So uh, I'm not. <laughs> I know you know. We'll condense it into a shorter form. And the Rhine starts to flow a little faster. Wagner realized that what he had created was going to be over 14 hours of music, uh, not to mention breaks for sausages and things like that. So that is when he conceived the idea of an opera house where people could get away from their lives, get away from their jobs, get away from everything, and immerse themselves completely in his music. <laughs> so as I say, both genius and an incredible self-confidence uh, come together here. And of course, Wagner did realize this dream. Um, the only part of it that he was not able to realize was that he thought uh, Bayreuth would pay for itself 
and that he could, in fact, let everybody who wanted to come for free and that the opera house would be taken down sort of like a Tibetan sand mandala after the festival and there would be nothing left, which is one of the most beautiful, poetic, uh, absurd fantasies that anybody has ever had. He did um, find that by selling memberships to the uh, Bayreuth Festival that he was able to raise some of the money, but I'll tell you later how he managed to raise the rest of it. Before that, I have a fantastic treat for you. You know that I have often sung in these evenings, and you've all been very indulgent. But tonight, uh, I have a friend who is a great Wagnerian soprano. She sings all over the world. She was an apprentice here at Santa Fe, and she's gone on to do roles in Seattle and Chicago Lyric Opera and Dusseldorf and Cologne, and she just finished a run of Isolde's in Oslo. Um, it is a great pleasure for me to introduce Karen Foster. What Karen is going to sing for you is from The Ring. It is uh, an aria that Sieglinde sings while she is in the throes of falling in love with Sigmund. They've been together for, you know, 15 minutes. And um, <laughs> she, she has started to uh, tell him how her life with her husband is unbearable, and she's given him a sleeping potion so that he will not interrupt this aria or the duet that follows it. <laughs> and he has said, uh, spring is coming in. And she, in this aria, du bist der Lenz, says, you are spring. You are the spring that my soul has been longing for. So I'm going to let the music speak for itself once I find it. Um, does anybody have a pair of generic reading glasses that they would lend me? Thank you. Wagner used to wear glasses just like this, okay? Oh, that's so much better, my God. Okay, I'll be there in a second. Yeah.
now you know the main reason why people go halfway around the world to hear these operas. It's not just because redemption is a wonderful theme, it's because Wagner learned how to create this soaring, swelling, heaving music. Um, now, I brought the piece to an end, but in fact, no piece that Wagner writes ever ends until the end of the act. He suspends us both through harmony and melody so that the ear is continually drawn onward. And of course, you know these acts are anywhere from you know, one, one and a bit hours to two hours long. So Wagner creates a harmonic language. And again, I, I won't turn it into a music theory class, but uh, by using diminished seventh chords and augmented chords and what we call a half diminished chord, like when, um, I'll skip ahead in history a little bit. If, if uh, Walter uh, sings the prize song in the Meistersinger, and the last chord should be a big resounding C major chord, you know. I'm too early. Hang on. to hear that, but instead you, you hear that, so the story keeps going. And through the use of these unresolved chords, uh, a Wagner piece continues in an unbroken line until the actual end of a scene. This was his design, and he said, I am no longer writing operas. I am writing music dramas. I am creating a Gesamtkunstwerk something that brings all the arts together. And so it was against his artistic principles to use these forms that had beginnings and ends in that way. Uh, okay, I'll skip ahead in history again. There's an opera, Parsifal, Wagner's last opera. Parsifal starts with a theme in A flat major. but already you can tell we've wandered off into another key. I'm playing this twice as fast as it really goes. And only at the end of the opera, five and a half hours later, does it resolve. And you say, oh, now I can breathe after five and a half hours. So the suspension of resolution is the key to these forms. Now, Wagner did write a very few things in shorter forms, and you're about to hear one of the pieces. Uh, he was, as I said, dependent upon the support of wealthy patrons to keep these operas flowing. And um, one of these was Otto Wesendonck, a wealthy Swiss silk merchant. So Wesendonck set Wagner and his wife, Minna, who was occasionally around, but really they were pretty estranged by this point, up in a little cottage next to his house. I mean, a little cottage with two stories and eight rooms. And um, Wagner composed there, and um, not being one to miss an opportunity, soon also was having some kind of a relationship with the guy's wife. 
And um, we don't really know the nature of it, except that whether or not it was a sexual relationship, he told Weizendonk that um, once a woman had met Richard Wagner, it was impossible for them to fully love the person that they had been with before <laughs> because they were so completely under the spell of his genius and spiritual enlightenment. So um, sure enough, Matilda Weizendonk and Wagner had this uh, relationship of whatever it was, and Weizendonk, the woman Weizendonk, Matilda, wrote five poems, quite lovely poems actually, uh, for Wagner to set to music, and he did. So these so-called Weizendonk Lieder are one of the very few non-operatic compositions Wagner left us. But he used two of these five songs to form a much larger piece, which he also wrote really with Matilde von Wesendonck in mind, and that's the opera Tristan und Isolde, which is about a knight who has an illicit love with the person uh, who is the wife of the person who protects him, just as Wagner's situation is with his patron Otto Wesendonck. So just the way in the story of Tristan and Isolde that um, King Mark should only get Tristan's respect, uh, and instead Tristan and Isolde become uh, a couple that can never be severed in eternity, uh, Wagner and Matilda Wesendong felt the same way about one another. So these are the five songs, and um, rather than translate them all, I'm just going to give you a quick summary of, of each one as we come to it. Okay. Karen, come join us. Uh, in this song, the singer says, in childhood I heard about how angels would come and redeem us, and an angel has also appeared to me and will take every pain that I have ever had uh, he heavenward. <clears throat>
The second song essentially says, all you powers of creation, time, original thought, everything which makes us stop for a moment so that I can feel the passion of earthly love that I have inside me. And in that moment, I will have solved the riddle of all of nature. <laughs> it was the 19th century. <laughs> This next song is called In a Greenhouse, and it tells of 
a palm tree that's been moved from a place where it would normally grow to an environment where it is, of course, a stranger, even though within the tiny confines of the greenhouse it can survive. This is, of course, a poem about Wagner being an exile in Switzerland, uh, which to him may have seemed like a tiny confining greenhouse. So <laughs> this is also a study for Tristan and Isolde. The second act of Tristan and Isolde begins. Uh, third, thank you. And you'll hear in a different key the same
the next song, again, connecting with nature, thanks the sun and other things in nature for giving the example that in everything that comes, there's also a going away, that in every joy there is sorrow. And he says, thank you for teaching me this. This last song, Dreams, is from the second act of Tristan's <laughs> This is a part of the very long love duet that Tristan and Isolde sing. And dreams are hidden from day. Dreams are part of night. Dreams are part of the unconscious. And we're going to love each other so much that ultimately we die together. This is Tristan in a nutshell. So this song, Träume, Dreams, is the study for Tristan and Isolde.
Karen is going to sing some more after the intermission. So name that tune. <laughs> oh, du mein holder Abendstern. Yeah, bravo. <laughs> Wagner finishes the Weisendonk leader. And of course, you know, he can't go back to Germany. So he takes a trip to London. And for several months gives a series of concerts, which the critics roundly despise. What music, they say, could use philosophical uh, trappings to conceal the fact that it is completely empty and devoid of any real value. <laughs> the final concert Wagner gives in London, he's conducting his own Tannhäuser Overture. And at the end, a little woman comes up to him and he said, she was very red in the face and certainly not pretty. And she said, that was amazing. It, it had wildness, and it was exuberant and passionate, and I, it was Queen Victoria. <laughs> so they became friends. And uh, his comment about her was the red face and not at all pretty, and he said, she said, uh, he has a big forehead and a pointy chin. So uh, there was no romance, but certainly a great moment for Wagner. And she wrote to him and would ask, how is your dog, Peps, and how is the parrot, and all of this. So Wagner and Queen Victoria struck up a friendship. But it still took a while, as you know, for Wagner to be able to go back to his homeland. Meanwhile, 1855, he's throwing himself into writing Tristan and Isolde. Now, in part one, I played you a little eight-bar tune from Lohengrin. 
And even though it fits into a metrical pattern, which is typical of opera at that time, I pointed out that harmonically it's more adventurous because travels through five keys. Listen to the love duet from Tristan and Isolde in the same key, traveling through the same five keys with two extra ones thrown in for good measure. Here we are in B, got there from A flat. Okay, B flat we hadn't been in, but we used that to get to B major where we were in the Lohengrin. D flat we hadn't been in, but he uses that to get to D. And then, unlike the Lohengrin, he continues off into more keys. But clearly, that key sequence was exactly the prototype for the fantastic love duet in Tristan and Isolde. So Wagner is always looking for ways to soften the edges. No more four-bar phrases. No more clean harmonic resolutions. And he avoids rhyme in the traditional sense, because rhyme creates cadence and he's trying to avoid cadence. So what does he use in the place of rhyme? He uses something which he calls Stopp-Rhym, which is essentially alliteration. So for example, when Sieglinde wants to say uh, the men were sitting around here, she doesn't say, die Männer waren hier bei uns, she says, der Männer sippe saß hier im Saal. The, the, the kinsmen sat here in the room, and Wagner finds these words that begin with the same sounds. Von Hundig zu Hochzeit geladen. The uh, alliteration runs through all of the medieval. Now, it's not really uh, a technique that was used in medieval poetry as much as Wagner would have us believe, but he uses an old-fashioned German and uses this Stopprheim, this alliteration, so we have the sense uh, even linguistically, that we're in another world. Somebody did a study and they said, um, what percentage of words sung by opera singers are understood by the public? And <laughs> this is without, without supertitles, okay. So uh, the answer was it depended greatly on the composer and the work and that say an operetta might be understood 90% and at the other end, at the bottom of the list was Wagner where it said roughly 3% of the words are understood by a public who speaks the language that the work is being sung. <laughs> so getting to know Wagner is a long-term effort. And uh, somebody was talking with me at intermission and I said, really, the thing to do is, if you're interested, get one CD, get one opera, and put it on just without really listening to it. Put on Tannhäuser or Lohengrin or Meisterzinger or whatever you choose, the ring, because sooner or later, your ear will start to recognize the themes that come again and again and again. And this is exactly what Wagner intends, because then when you hear the work in its gigantic actual length, so many motifs will be familiar to you that you won't find yourself wandering off quite in the same way that you would if it was five hours of virgin territory. And there is nothing wrong with recognizing melody. It is, in fact, crucial to our experience of music. We 
recognize a tune and suddenly, I'm sure you've had this experience, you're sitting in the audience and a lot of unfamiliar music is being played and suddenly there's a tune everybody knows and you hear 600 people go, Oh, right? So you will have the same experience with Wagner's operas, uh, if, like I say, if you want to do it. Because um, once you fall in love with one of these operas, I warn you, you will, in spite of yourself, want to travel to go see the thing on stage. So maybe you should consider that before you, you do this. But it, it really is hypnotic. There is a Wagner effect, which I can't explain. Wagner's wife, Minna Planner, died in 1866. But by this time, he and she had become completely estranged. However, he was kind to her uh, to the end of her life, and he said, we have suffered so much together that I really feel uh, there will always be a kinship. Suffering was, was big for Wagner. But <laughs> it was really bigger in the way he talked about it than what he, you know. V Wagner had a lot of ideas for other people and um, he didn't necessarily feel he needed to follow them himself. Um, somewhere in the last 15 of years of his life, he, he espoused vegetarianism as a concept. <laughs> he never stopped eating meat, but he never stopped telling people and even giving seminars on the value of vegetarianism. Now that's a kind of a silly example, but I think it stands for the way Wagner actually did a lot of things. He, he had a lot of um, rhetoric that he imposed on other people. And um, while he was undoubtedly a genius of music theater, there were other areas of his life where he was, you know, a raving lunatic. And um, <laughs> I think we have, to, we have to talk about Wagner and anti-Semitism because clearly uh, Wagner is known for his writings. Uh, he, he wrote an article in 1850 called Jewishness in Music. Now, let's try to put this in perspective that Wagner always was serving Wagner, nobody else. So, Wagner had been praised by Meyerbeer, like I said, the most popular 19th century opera composer who was Jewish. Meyerbeer's success eclipsed Wagner's successes. Wagner never forgave him. Mendelssohn, who was Jewish, at the age of 16, let's see, Mendelssohn was four years older than Wagner. So when Wagner was 12, 1825, uh, Mendelssohn wrote a work of genius so great that all of Europe just thought Mendelssohn is the greatest composer there is, the, the octet, the string octet. Wagner never forgave Mendelssohn for that. <laughs> and so in this article, you know, for all the horrific things that have been said by anti-Semites over, over time, this article focuses on two things. One, the sound of Yiddish, obviously nobody was speaking Hebrew, um, the sound of Yiddish is like the buzzing of flies and it's annoying, right? That was a big criticism. And the other one was that because the Jews have a culture of their own, they cannot fully inhabit our culture unless they renounce their own culture. So he praised Mendelssohn. Of course, he carefully wrote this after Mendelssohn was dead. This was 1850 and Mendelssohn died in 1847. He praised Mendelssohn for changing religion. And of course, in an anti-Semitic world, a lot of people did make that choice, and Mendelssohn's father said to the children, uh, you're gonna change your name and you're gonna act as if you're Gentiles. And um, Wagner said, okay, uh, if, if Jewish people wanna fit into German culture, which he revered above everything, then the simple solution is that they should renounce Judaism and become Christians. So many people, including Liszt, were horrified by this article, 
But again, let's remember that, unfortunately, the time was prevalently anti-Semitic. So while some friends of Wagner's said, what are you doing? Uh, overall, he was just playing to the gallery. He thought, I want to be more recognized, and this is one more way to do it. So there are characters in two of his pieces, I would say, that are sort of anti-Semitic characters there. Um, one is, one is the, the bad composer in um, Die Meistersinger, Beckmesser. Now, if there was something that Wagner despised more than Jews, it was music critics. And <laughs> there was a famous music critic that hated Wagner named Edward Hanslick. And originally, the character Beckmesser was called Hans Lick. That was his name in the opera. And Wagner thought, perhaps that is too obvious. And <laughs> So instead, he sort of turns Beckmesser into the, um, the caricature of a Jewish uh, pedant who is always uh, criticizing the other singers when they don't follow the rules exactly. So without trying to whitewash Wagner's anti-Semitism, I'm trying to put it in a context to say it was much more self-serving than political. Um, that you know, that, that Hitler would hear the ride of the Valkyries and think, let's invade Poland, is not really Wagner's fault. I think that, um, you know, that it's, that it's music that rouses your passions, yes. But um, obviously, we could spend a whole evening just discussing that subject. But I think it has to be uh, accepted that Wagner was hateful in that way. And that later, almost 20 years later, after Meyerbeer died, um, he wrote another article, or sort of a rehash of the same article, because um, Meyerbeer and Mendelssohn both were real thorns in his side. On the other hand, Wagner the user was quick to take advantage of any Jewish person that could help him. Um, Hermann Levy conducted all the performances of Parsifal in Wagner's lifetime, was a Jew whom Wagner admired greatly. Uh, as I said, the story for um, the Flying Dutchman, and also to some extent Tannhäuser was thanks to Heinrich Heine, who was Jewish, and um, Josef Rubinstein, uh, one of the three great Rubinstein pianists we've had in the last 150 years, uh, was the pianist who arranged the Siegfried Idyll for Wagner, uh, and there were others. Mahler was quite a disciple of Wagner. He even went to one of his vegetarian seminars, I remember. Uh, <laughs> Schopenhauer and Nietzsche both were vegetarians, and so Wagner thought it would be a good thing because it sort of put them in the same company with him. And I promised Ling I would talk about Schopenhauer. So Wagner was very influenced by Schopenhauer, but uh, chose what interested him. Uh, Schopenhauer was a misogynist. Wagner loved women, so that part of Schopenhauer's philosophy did not interest him at all. But the part where uh, Schopenhauer talks about what is essentially the unconscious. We all know how Freud popularized the unconscious, and I don't mean popularized in a trivial sense, but uh, let millions of people know about it. Uh, but Schopenhauer said, you know, a person can um, do, what, do what they want, but they can't make themselves want what they want, that the urges that make us want and desire are beyond our own control. And Schopenhauer compared this to night and day. He said that there is a dark part of ourselves that, although we cannot see it, guides our actions, propels us 
in love, in work, in every aspect of life. This is essentially what Wagner tries to embody in the opera Tristan and Isolde. Okay, we can look at other Wagner heroes already. Tannhäuser, who isn't doing the right thing because he was hanging out with Venus for a year, and, and the Dutchman who made the pact with Satan, and all these people acting on urges, not doing what society tells them to do. Siegfried, once he's had the potion, which is sort of a, an allegorical potion, uh, so that he hooks up with Gutruna when he's really married to Brunhilde. All of these things to Wagner are metaphors for the way we are as people. Um, we know what we should do, and then we know what we want to do. And Wagner always justifies what we want to do. He says, uh, the dark is when we find out our true nature. And obviously, Matilda Wesendonck supported him in that, in that song uh, about how um, you, you can only find uh, the truth once you get in touch with the, the passion inside you. So in Tristan and Isolde, um, the love comes about not because they fall in love, but because uh, the handmaid of Isolde, whom Isolde has asked to give them a death potion, instead gives them a love potion. But again, it's the idea that some force outside, or some force inside that we can't see, has taken control of our destiny. Tristan and Isolde wait for each other, uh, and they won't get together until the light has been put out, until the torches are out. Always uh, night is the time for the truth to emerge. And of course, when daylight comes, King Mark comes and finds the two of them together when Isolde is his wife. So uh, this is the, the Schopenhauer legacy that Wagner seized onto. He, um, had other philosophers that, that he subscribed to, and basically the idea was that um, humanity should not be tied to any rules. Now again, the self-serving Wagner feels that he himself should not be tied to any rules. And um, he, he justifies this, and you know, even in the opera, say in Die Valkyrie, after uh, Sieglinde has sung Du bist Lenz, the music when the brother and sister come together is so sweeping and fantastic and passionate that nobody in the opera house thinks, oh, those bad children. They think, wow, you know. So music is being used as a, a propagandistic tool here to, to justify everything, because if it's that wonderful, what can really be wrong with it, you know? So um, I think that, that Wagner touches into this uh, truth about the unconscious without calling it that, but that there's this area of, of dark, which is wonderful because it shows us something we don't know. All right, um, so Wagner has um, a great friend in Franz Liszt, and Franz Liszt has several children, Blondine and Daniela and Cosima. Cosima is a brilliant young woman, much young, a generation younger than Wagner, because Liszt and Wagner are essentially the same age, and they're taking a carriage trip together, and by the end of the carriage trip, according to Wagner, and Cosima, they had gazed into each other's eyes and sworn each other love for the rest of their lives. Bad news for Liszt, and bad news, perhaps worse news, for Cosima's husband, Hans von Bülow, <laughs> who was a great pianist and composer and conductor and was Liszt's protege. So Cosima started having children, um, which mystified Hans von Bülow a little bit. And, uh, <laughs> 
she, she wanted them named Ava and Isolde and Siegfried. So the mystery dissipated. And uh, Hans von Bülow knew he wasn't really great husband material. And apparently, he had said to her and to Liszt when they married, if this doesn't work out, I freely will give her up. And while he was definitely uh, betrayed and felt betrayed, he did say to Wagner, who expected nothing less, uh, <laughs> if it has to be somebody, at least it's you. And so he handed Cosima over to Wagner, and they got married. Meanwhile, Wagner is carrying out the scheme to build his city on a hill of Bayreuth, a theater consecrated to his pieces, not only in that people can get away and immerse themselves in the philosophy and the music and the stories of Wagner for several days, but also um, with technical changes that had never been used before in opera. For example, the orchestra plays underneath the stage. So instead of separating the audience from the stage, the audience is closer to the stage, and the sound of the orchestra doesn't overwhelm the singers as easily as it does when you have a traditional orchestra pit which is open to the theater. Wagner's orchestra was an innovation as well. He used more instruments than anybody else. And not only more, but he invented some new ones of his own. I told you he liked to soften the edges of things. He went to Adolf Sachs, the inventor of the saxophone, and said, can you create for me a sort of hybrid between a tuba and a French horn? Wagner loved French horns. And thus were born Wagner tubas, so-called Wagner tubas. And these lovely, mellow instruments are part of the makeup of everything in the ring and some other Wagner operas. So Wagner is creating his own theater, his own design for a theater, his own orchestra, his own instruments that go into the orchestra. Everything about this is his own. And I think that now you understand why, years later, we're drawn to this, because he had not just a concept of a new piece he was going to write, but how it was going to be presented, how it would be received, uh, and how to give people the opportunity to go to a different world to receive it. And obviously, implicit in that is his belief that uh, his vision is worthwhile enough that people should stop their lives and go uh, see this. And I, I think history has borne that out. So whatever else we may say about Wagner, he had a vision and he realized it in an incredible way. So uh, are there any other subjects that any of you would like to discuss about Wagner before um, Karen sings a fantastic finale for us. All right then, we are going to do a scene for you from the first act of Tristan and Isolde. Now, Isolde, uh, an Irish princess, has been taken like chattel by Tristan to marry King Mark. And she and her serving woman, Brangaina, are on the ship. And in this selection, Isolde explains to Brangaina why this is such a demeaning thing that's being done to her. Because she was engaged to a man named Morolt. Morolt and Tristan were in combat. Tristan killed Morolt. Isolde, who found the wounded Tristan in a little skiff, a little boat off the coast, 
healed him using the healing arts that are part of her inheritance from her mother. And while she could have slain him once she figured out who he was, he looked at her directly in the eyes and she chose not to do that. And now how does Tristan repay her? By taking her to marry somebody else. So I did that in a shorter version than what you're going to hear in the aria, <laughs> but not nearly as magnificent. So Karen is going to sing Isolde's Narrative and Curse. Oh, 
we forgot, we forgot a very important happy ending part of Wagner's story. With the huge debts, this would never have been possible until a crazy king named Ludwig II decided that he would underwrite everything Wagner did to the tune of many millions. And uh, when the Bayreuth project, for example, didn't come through, Ludwig II happily provided the 100,000 marks and then later on another several hundred thousand marks. And so we owe the survival of Wagner's legacy to uh, the Mad King, as they called him, Ludwig II, who named his castle after the swan in Lohengrin, Neuschwanstein. And uh, so I think when we're having our cake and celebrate, we should also raise a toast to Ludwig II. Okay. <laughs> so thank you all. Okay. <laughs>